Let's Talk Outdoors is recorded on the homelands of many nations, including the Cree, Soto, Assiniboine, Dene, Dakota, Lakota, Nakota, and Métis nations on the Treaty 6 and Treaty 4 territories. We encourage you to always learn more about the stories of the land on which you live, work, and play. I'm Leah. And I'm Mike. And this is Let's Talk Outdoors. Today we are talking with Louise de Lamar, who is an outdoor play at leader based in Ottawa. We break down the definitions of outdoor play, the barriers, and the benefits for people of all ages and abilities. Louise shares about the new Canadian Centre for Outdoor Play, international collaboration, and the need for equity, diversity, and inclusion when creating outdoor play opportunities. Welcome, Louise. Thanks for joining Let's Talk Outdoors. You are a special kind of guest on our podcast who doesn't actually live in Saskatchewan. So could you tell us a bit about where you live and the traditional territories or that you live on? Sure. Thanks, Leah. Thank you so much for having me. Um, my name is Louise, like you've mentioned, and I live in Ottawa in the traditional unceded territories of the Algonquin Anishinaabe. Um, and I'm very fortunate to, to live very close to places where I can um, live, work, and play in, in natural environments. Can you start by telling us about your life experience that got you interested in outdoor play? My life experience? Um, sure. I, um, I'm very fortunate to have grandparents um, who bought a piece of land for a song in Northern Ontario and built a very eclectic cottage that was essentially not that inviting um, to be indoors during the summer. It was dark. It was less warm. And so the invitation was always to be outside. It was always warmer outside. It was always more fun to be outside. And they loved having the grandkids around. So the par our parents essentially sent us for two months of the summer um, up to Northern Ontario, where we <laughs> didn't put shoes or socks on for two months straight. Um, had a thick ring of friendship bracelets around our ankles and wrists and sometimes in my hair. Um, and we swam and we climbed and we discovered and we built and we ran with friends and we were just had full opportunity to play freely unstructured and rarely with adult supervision. And I think that's where it started. Do you find you think, yeah, like, do you think back to that sort of stuff whenever you're doing this kind of work? All the time, all the time. Yeah, it was, I mean, there were a number of things that made it so special. It was, um, my grandparents were Polish and there was a whole road of Polish people. It was a whole Polish community that that bought pieces of land and built there. So everyone knew everyone. And so it meant that there was this level of trust and, and sort of watching over the fellow kids. It was just a unique place. Um, and, and I think all the time how fortunate I was to feel, feel that freedom. And I didn't realize, I guess, how special it was until I actually started formally working in this field. Just before we started recording, you were telling us a bit about your more formal education uh, story, and that sounded like it plays in well with your current role. Can you tell us a bit about that journey also? Sure. Um, so I have a PhD in clinical exercise physiology, 
And so for my PhD, what I was looking at was the uh, role of cardiorespiratory fitness as a clinical risk factor. And so when you go to the physician's office and you have your height and weight measured, they ask if you um, smoke, if you drink, um, if you eat your vegetables, all of those things are risk factors for whether or not you are at elevated risk for diseases such as type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And, and there's there's been generations, there's been decades of evidence showing that cardiorespiratory fitness or just fitness um, is this very strong and independent risk factor. So if you have a high fitness, then you have very low risk of developing cardiovascular disease, for example. Um, and But the problem is, is that in order to measure someone's fitness, you need to do what's called a VO2 max test, which requires an individual to walk and up to run on a treadmill until their maximal effort, essentially until they cannot go any farther, takes about 12 to 18 minutes. You need a treadmill, you need a $40,000 machine to measure their oxygen output, and you need to make sure that the person observing and measuring is uh, properly trained. So obviously there are major, major barriers to having this measured in clinic. And so a large part of my thesis was looking at how to looking at alternative methods for measuring and estimating cardiorespiratory fitness so that it could be more easily integrated into clinical practice. Um, and that sort of that sense of, of shift of, of using research and a scientific approach for very practical and clinically relevant output uh, led me to the position that I am now sort of in a somewhat indirect way. So when I was graduating, I was looking not for a postdoc, but for something maybe a little bit more practical, but still hopefully in research. And uh, a position popped up with Dr. Mark Tremblay at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario Research Institute, and I applied for it. I, uh, I, I knew him fairly well. I knew a lot of people that had gone through his lab, so I felt very confident um, that if I was, you know, if I was taken on for this position, that I would, it would be a good spot, and, and it has been. And when we, when I started with him, he sort of said, listen, I have a number of different projects, just see what sticks and Outdoor Play Canada stuck. Oh yeah. What is Outdoor Play Canada? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so currently it is a network. It's an unstructured thing um, that resides within this research institute in Ottawa. And I say unstructured thing right now because we're actually moving to incorporate Outdoor Play Canada as a non-for-profit organization within the coming months. So it'll be a little bit more of a thing. Um, but the, the overarching role of Outdoor Play Canada is to serve as this convener of outdoor play stakeholders in Canada. And it came from this idea back in 2015. 14, 20, 2013, 2014, um, when research was being collected to develop the position statement on active outdoor play, which was led by Dr. Mark Tremblay, where when they developed this statement, they brought together a number of different stakeholders that, that researchers at least had never really uh, interacted with before. So they were interacting suddenly with early childhood educators, with playground construction people, with um, safety inspectors, with environmentalists, with climate change people, with policymakers. And there was sort of this recognition that outdoor play really seeps into all of these different crevices of, of life that we hadn't really considered before. But as a result, there's there was no form of, there was no central hub for all of these different people to communicate with each other, to share information, to connect. And so that was the idea of, of Outdoor Play Canada to serve as this national convener of outdoor play enthusiasts in Canada. 
That's wonderful. Yeah. So here's a question. Zask Outdoors has an outdoor play committee and a, a part-time outdoor play coordinator. And we discuss regularly what is the definition of outdoor play. And I feel like you're a good person to ask this question of to hear your thoughts. Well, you're going to have to give me a moment because I actually want to pull up the proper definition. Um, And there's a proper definition because um, one of the projects, uh, one of the major projects from Outdoor Play Canada that arose, I guess, from Outdoor Play Canada and a number of colleagues was this project called PlatoNet, which stands for Play Learning and Teaching Outdoors Network. It's an international network um, devoted to play learning and teaching outdoors. Uh, so where Outdoor Play Canada is, is nationally focused, PlatoNet is sort of the international arm. And um, this network, uh, it exists, it still exists, but one of the first projects or the first project that it launched um, was the Terminology Taxonomy Ontology Global Harmonization Project. Um, a bit of a mouthful, but the purpose of that was essentially to achieve international consensus uh, in part on definitions related to play learning and teaching outdoors. And the reason for that was because when you look internationally um, at terms like outdoor play or what is risky play, or um, better yet, what is outdoor? What does outdoor learning even mean? So, for example, in in Denmark, um, they have a term called learning outside the classroom, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you are learning outside. It means that you are not in the classroom. So, you could be at a museum, you could be at a nursery, for example, um, learning beyond the the four walls of a typical classroom. And that's obviously very distinct from someone who's leading a nature, a forest and nature school program. Those things are entirely different. So there is this need to categorize and to define so that um, we make sure that we're all talking about the same thing so that we can, when we're measuring certain things, we can actually then compare to what's happening with across different countries um, so that we can see if there are similarities or differences um, when we're measuring these things and talking about these things. So um, it was a two-year project because as you can imagine, getting international passionate experts on this topic to agree on definitions is not an easy feat. Um, and Dr. Yun Yang Lee, who um, I know very well, she was actually on my examination committee for my PhD. Um, she led this project. And after two years, they they published the final international consensus document. And I um, I say that with a bit of an asterisk, asterisk because um, the idea is that there's sort of a general recognition that these definitions will evolve over time, likely. And so, um, you know, th- these are the definitions now, but they may not always be. And so when we're actually talking, mind my like large prelude to <laughs> the definition of what outdoor play is. It's, you know, we sort of went with a very simple of a form of play that takes place outdoors, where play is, um, we called it voluntary engagement and activity that is fun and or rewarding and usually driven by intrinsic motivation. And all of that has a lot of nuance to it. First of all, we specifically made sure that when we're talking about outdoor play, it's not nature play. It is outdoors. So you can, if you are on a gravel pit, that still counts as outdoor play um, as much as being in nature is considered outdoor play. Obviously, there are different benefits to each form um, and major differences in the types of play that occur, but they're both considered outdoor play. 
The other thing is voluntary engagement that is um, usually driven by intrinsic motivation. And we said usually because you could argue that if a kid is forced to play soccer, but then enjoys soccer, they're probably still playing, even if they weren't intrinsically motivated to play that game of soccer. And fun and or rewarding, we said fun and or rewarding because my sister-in-law loves to use the term type two fun um, when she thinks about adults play. There's, you know, type one fun is probably immediately rewarding. Type two fun is is running a marathon. For some people, it's actually fun and can be considered play. But um, it's sort of driven by that. The the fun part is really the rewarding part. Mm -hmm. The journey. The journey. Exactly. Yeah. So why, like, as why is outdoor play so important then? I know that there's maybe some people who are, they don't want to go near it. They don't, they feel very comfortable where they are inside or yeah, I'm thinking of educators, especially right now too, but why is outdoor play so important? So with that position statement on active outdoor play, that was really a great summation of why outdoor play is so important. Because when children are outdoors, they um, move more, sit less, and play longer. They are away from screens. It's uh, associated with improvements in cardiorespiratory fitness, my favorite. It's improved, associated with improved uh, management of stress, um, associated with improved social skills, with uh, developmental skills, musculoskeletal skills. That's just for children. You know, the number of of times I heard over the pandemic, um, the sort of general recognition that I was so stressed and then I just went outside and I felt better. I stared at a tree and I felt better. It's important for our emotional well-being just as much as it is for our physical well-being. I've noticed that or we notice at Sasko Doors and in general that a lot of outdoor play is focused on the early years. Uh, I'm curious why you think that is and how outdoor play relates to older students and adults and seniors. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's sort of a, a consequence of the structures of our education system. Um, there's less, maybe some criticize me for saying this, but uh, it feels, you know, there are less uh, grades associated, let's say that, um, in the early years. I think there's sort of a, a, a larger permission of very young children to simply just play. And then as children get older, there's this expectation that they need to to have structured learning and to have very specific outputs um, and that there are way, very specific ways of achieving those outputs as children get older. A bit more streamlined. Much more streamlined, yeah. <clears throat> of course, I think it's definitely something, there's a big movement to incorporate more play into learning, um, but it does, it's, it's challenging because it means you have to change the curriculum. I think early child education has always had play as a as a as a part of it and and the more structured education system not so much play is often considered a break from learning as opposed to an opportunity for a different form of learning and if we can shift away from that thinking i think we can actually encourage a lot more children to enjoy learning if it's play and keep those habits longer into into adulthood and yeah totally totally um, you recently received funding to launch the Canadian Centre for Outdoor Play. Can you tell us a bit more about that initiative that you guys have been working on? I would love to. Mm, great. It's been a, like a two-year 
process essentially of developing this idea and longer than that, actually. So in 2018, my mentor, Dr. Mark Tremblay, um, together with Kim Hiscott from Andrew Fleck Children's Services in Ottawa, they secured funding, um, $1.5 million of funding to build this outdoor-focused early child education center in the west end of Ottawa. And without any additional funding, it would just be this outdoor-focused early childhood education center. It would be amazing. It'll you know do really great work for children, but that's all it would be. Um, but of course, that's not that wasn't the vision. The vision was for it to be much larger. And so with this funding that we've recently secured, $2.1 million of funding over five years, um, what we are going to do, because we've we've got a plan and we have to do it if we want to make sure that we get this money over the course of five years, um, is to have it serve as a center of excellence in outdoor play, where we bring practice, policy, and research together. So with graduate students coming from from Mark's lab, um, we will look and explore the benefits of the outdoor play and learning program on not just the the children involved, but on on the families, as well as on the educators, because we know educators are exhausted and are burnt out. So I can imagine that an outdoor focused, forest focused program will probably be beneficial in terms of the mental health of educators, as well as them staying in the profession longer and being more passionate about it and and enjoying it longer. And then also, of course, to address barriers. So right now, it's you typically don't see a lot of uh, forest nature school programs that serve very, very young children, because there are obvious um, concerns, safety concerns, tech concerns, um, equipment concerns. So addressing those barriers as well. A big thing that um, has become has sort of really come to the forefront is, uh, you know, forest and nature type play and learning is great, but um, but what about children living with disability? Um, how do they access those places, and what are what can we do to ensure that they feel comfortable? And also, and I think at the forefront of that is how do we make sure that the, their families feel comfortable with them participating, that the educators feel comfortable and know how to properly support them. I was just talking to Kim from Andrew Fleck, and she was mentioning that um, a child with cerebral palsy had participated in one of their programs, and the child was fine. They were falling, they were getting back up, they were happy. But the parents and the educators, they had a really hard time seeing this child fall and be and and be okay with with that. Um, obviously, you never want to make want to put a child in in a position where they're going to seriously hurt themselves. But uh, recognizing that every child has a different level of ability and develops at a different pace, so um, so that's sort of one of the things that we're going to explore. And that's just the research side of things. Obviously, in terms of the practice, we'll um, we'll have that that outdoor focused early child education program, but it'll also serve as this um, demonstration program. Because currently in Ontario, and I believe every province in in Canada, there are uh, restrictions on licensing that prevent outdoor-focused early childhood education programs from being licensed. And if they're not licensed, then they're not um, open for subsidy. And if they're not open for subsidy, a large proportion of families can't afford to send their children to them. So this demonstration site um, will exist within current licensing restrictions, regulations rather. 
so but but we'll challenge and sort of push the limits of those a little bit so that we can identify you know where we can actually evolve the regulations so that um, so that more outdoor focus programs can can exist. And then we're also working, so it's a it's a collaborative project. It's with the the, the Research Institute, um, Mark's group, Healthy Active Living and Obesity Research Group. It's with Andrew Fleck Children's Services. It's with Outdoor Play Canada, where we'll provide a lot of the knowledge translation and mobilization. And finally, it's with Algonquin College, which is a local college, and they'll be um, working to evolve their current outdoor play and learning program for early childhood educators and then bringing those students to the site to the forest nature to the, to the outdoor focused program so that their students can actually apply what they're learning in practice um sorry in 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 class in in practice and then as part of that program help develop them as champions so that if they don't continue their practice at this outdoor based program that wherever they go they bring those skills and that knowledge um, to more traditional based uh, education, early child education programs. That's excellent. Mm -hmm. That sounds very ambitious. And uh, like, there's lots of multifaceted, there's lots of angles and things that you've considered in it. It sounds very exciting. Yeah, it it is. I I am. Um, I just had two meetings with the back to back with the Algonquin College team and with the Andrew Fleck team, because when you put everything down that it that we need to do that we've said that we're going to do, it feels a little bit overwhelming. So we each had to have meetings. We're like, okay, here is the list of five things that we need to do in the next little while, and that's let's focus on those, and then we'll think about the next stage in a little bit. But it's very exciting. The, the coolest thing is that when we when we announced the news, um, we've had people reaching out saying, how can I help? Completely unsolicited. So that's it's, it feels really good to know that, you know, we're we're probably doing something that people care about. Mm -hmm. That's when you know you're on the right track for something pretty special, too, I think. Yeah, exactly. I, I know that like I've taught a little bit of outdoor education for for the last six or seven years now. And I, I do notice that it is, it's not as inclusive as it, as it should be. Um, and that's for like ableism. That's for, I know for like socioeconomics, it, you know, it seems sometimes outdoor education and outdoor play can seem to cater to a certain demographic of kid in person. Um, but we noticed that when we were doing research on, on outdoor play Canada, that you guys have a really strong commitment to equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, that's commonly known as the EDI. What are some of the challenges, and gaps, and opportunities around EDI and, and outdoor play? Hard-hitting questions. <laughs> I mean, there are major challenges at any age. When you have, you know, Canada, when you have, a, when you're in a natural or in a national forest and the only people that are there are white, then if you're not white, you're not going to feel comfortable. You're not going to feel safe. And that, that happens. So if you're on the ski hill, you know, look around and see how many people are not white. Um, just by virtue of that fact, um, it makes it an, un, a, not a place that feels welcoming. Underlying factors to that, it's, it's access to nature, it's knowledge of how to access nature, it's knowing how to dress, um, having, you know, the financial freedom to do those things, to prioritize, even to prioritize going outside and going, you know, to the park. If you're working two jobs, um, you, you probably don't have time to go outside. If uh, you're a woman, you're probably not going to go outside in the dark. 
um, if even if that's the only time you have to go outside um, and into na to natural spaces. If you have several children and two jobs and you're a woman, then forget about it. You know, <laughs> you're not going outside. Um, and you're, you know, someone that's that's not white, then so all of these things layer and they layer and they layer. Um, and so, you know, there's a, a number of different challenges. Um, I, I think a first thing, one of the easiest things to do, easy, but maybe not that easy, is to improve access and then tend at the same time improve uh, knowledge. So um, in Ottawa, there's a a gear library, the Ottawa Gear Outdoor Gear Library. And I know that there are a number of gear libraries that exist. Actually, a lot of libraries across Canada have gear available that you can rent for free. And so just access to that equipment is huge. But then also you know how to need to know how to use the equipment, where to use the equipment, have access to the spaces to use that equipment. Um, and so, you know, making the spaces in, in people's neighborhoods. Um, you know, making a sidewalk into a cross-country ski, ski trail in the wintertime. All of a sudden, then you have an amazing route and you can discover your neighborhood, you can discover your neighbors, you can develop a sense of community, you can feel safer, you can, it means that your children will feel safer. It, it, it feels like a bit of a domino effect, but there's a lot of momentum you need to get started before that actually happens. Yeah, I have this pretty feisty young, young lady in my school. And I taught her last year and we do this urban trek every year. So we go out into different neighborhoods and the kids run these tours and they teach about sustainability. They teach about inequity. They teach about whatever local businesses and stuff like that. She's in a wheelchair. And at the time the city was doing all this massive construction in the neighborhoods. So there's all these ramps and it was a bad time on my part to, to run this at first I thought, but then it ended up being really good. Um, but there was two adults on that trip and we were pushing you know, we were pushing her through all the hills. She wanted to be, you know, she wanted to be on her own for a lot of the time, but there was a, sometimes she couldn't get her wheelchair up these little mounds. And yeah, I just think like it, I, you know, she won't, you know, for her to go down into the woods or for her to go down, you know, into some of the places that we totally take for granted, it is, a, it is a huge, massive undertaking for, for the supports in her life and things like that. I think this place that you guys are, are building and this, these ideas are so important. Um, and because it needs research needs to be done on this so that cities can look to this sort of work in their planning and then that educators and anybody that's that has um, that's dealing with this or has anybody in their life that's like that can can reference this. I think it's, it's so massively important. Mm -hmm. And it, it's interesting because a lot of children or families who have children um, with disability they're often they're often drawn to programs that are outdoor focused because if the disability is more cognitive, um, if the child has ADHD or has you know ADHD ADD, nature has this amazing amazing ability to soothe because there's a lot to focus on and because if there's a lot to distract, then it's actually somehow counterintuitively has this ability to calm, and so it it. it it's something that I hadn't really thought about, but it, um, whether we like it or not, we will have children of different abilities at this program and we have a responsibility to make sure that we're prepared to serve them and make sure that they're just part of it, that it's, they're not, that they're not isolated, that they um, are not held back, but that they get to enjoy it to the fullest, like every other child. You've mentioned a bit about different kinds of research that you are planning to do. And I know Sask Outdoors has really benefited from some of the research that Outdoor Play Canada has done and the resources that you put together. 
Is there any other upcoming research or angles around outdoor play that you are planning to look into? And there's always, <laughs> always, always. Um, you know, the the best thing about um, about my position is that I'm sort of, I often tell people I'm at the intersection of research and practice. So I'm often speaking to practitioners and hearing them. It's often a one hand, an offhanded comment of like, oh, well, how, you know, we don't know that knowledge, that information. I'm like, well, let's, let's go find it. Let's, let's go solve it. Um, and so, uh, and so an example of that is actually we have a graduate student, a master's student who's completing a project right now, um, looking at how to balance promoting outdoor play with respecting, uh, natural environments. So when you think of a child going out into natural environments to play, you know, they're, they're probably picking up stones. They're probably picking up, um, sticks, they're building forts. And that that's great. That's supporting their their physical literacy. That's su- supporting their creativity, but it also means that it's disturbing natural habitats for bugs, for birds, for all sorts of natural beings. And so, where how do you balance that? And that was a major thing that again came out during the pandemic because so many people started going outside and going into these natural places, and these natural places were getting worn down. And so, and that's, you know, if you're an adult, you probably stay on the path, but if you're a child, you probably don't, and you don't know why you shouldn't. And, um, and so uh, this master's student has the very challenging, um, but exciting um, role of, of exploring that balance. And um, she happens to also be Indigenous, so she's taking a two-eyed seeing approach for this project, which I think, you know, in, it it naturally f- suits that because Indigenous people have been learning and playing on the land since time immemorial, and, and they've been doing it with the utmost respect and recognition of the importance of the land. And so we're not to put any pressure on you if you're listening, <laughs> um, but, but we're really excited to see what comes of that project. Uh, I haven't heard too much about this, but I, I know other people in my same circles have, but loose parts play is a popular concept within the outdoor play world, but I'm not sure if everyone knows, including myself, what it means and why it's a pedagogical practice. So can you explain and describe loose parts play? Sure. You're giving me more opportunity to plug that Plato net project because we, we achieved an international consensus definition on loose parts. Oh, great. So loose parts are natural or manufactured play materials with no specific set of directions that can be used alone or combined with other materials, moved, carried, combined, redesigned, lined up, and taken apart and put back together in multiple ways. And if you, through that definition, can't envision yourself at some point in your life picking up a stick and making it into a wand, into a sword, into a stir stick, into, I don't know, a a pony, Um, then I don't know, I feel sorry for your childhood, but (laughs) under a rock. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, you know, loose parts are simply those pieces that have no specific intention. And as a result, they allow for just a multitude um, of forms of play. And so it supports children's creativity. It supports their, their role playing. It supports their social interactions. It supports their negotiation skills because often, 
you know, if there's only one big stick, I'm sure several children want to use that stick. Um, it supports their awareness of their children because sticks are pointy and can hurt people and rocks are heavy and can, and if you throw them at people that, you know, there are negative consequences. And so it teaches children to be self-reflective, to think about others, to plan out their movements, to communicate with their fellow uh, children. And then also to develop conversations around consent, which is such a, you know, who would imagine it would start so early, but if someone doesn't want to be poked with a stick, then they have every ability to say no. And that's an important thing to recognize. Um, so there's all these valuable life lessons that, uh, that can come from loose parts play. I think storytelling too, when I watch people do loose parts play, Sometimes it's hard for me to know what's going on. And so to ask a probing question and have the child tell a story about what what the cons- the creative uh, endeavor is, is really interesting too. Mm-hmm. And see where they go with it. Well, we're coming to the end of our time together. And we have a couple of questions we ask all of our guests. And one of them, Louise, is where is your favorite place, outdoor place to visit? Sure. So one of my favorite outdoor places to visit, I, I think it changes. Um, it changes and it has changed over time, but I think a common theme for me is always somewhere that's close to where I live. And so I'm very, very fortunate to live in a place that is close to nature, close to a natural uh, reserve. And it's my favorite place to be in nature because I can walk to it within 10 minutes. Um, There's water, there are ducks, there are chickadees. I can take my dog on one side, not the other, but that's fine. And um, and it's just beautiful and it going to it every season, it's different. And so right now all the chickadees are asking for food and they weren't doing that in the spring. And it's kind of neat to see the different interactions with, with nature and with, with the different animals in that space. Absolutely. Another question we ask our guests is if you could change one thing about the world, what would that be? You know, I think one thing I would change about the world, and maybe this is sort of the world in a, in a, in a closer sense, in a Canada sense, but probably applies more internationally too, um, is to make our the places where we live less car-centric, um, to make the places where we live and where we work and where we play focused on the actual people and the things that we're co-living with, the animals, as opposed to cars. It drives me crazy that I have to drive to get groceries. Um, I mean, I guess I don't need to, but it means that I have to bike on a road um, where cars aren't aren't used to seeing bikes, especially at this time of year. It, it, it changes everything when you have a space where children feel comfortable walking, animals feel comfortable crossing the road and and be coexisting with humans, um, where you know you have a relationship with the person that you buy your milk and vegetables from. And because that's not normal, only people in the upper strata of cities are the ones that live in those types of places. And I think if it was a lot more normal, then everyone could afford to have to live in a neighborhood like that. So that's what, that's what I would change. I always find that frustrating about like city planning where we are fully aware of how neat and unique these, in, these neighborhoods are, these communities, but then we don't replicate them, mm-hmm. you know, in the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very frustrating. Yeah. That's a great, I like that. That was a good, that's a good one. Great answer. 
Is there anything that we didn't ask you that you were hoping that we would or anything you want to add to our conversation? I mean, I think I could talk about outdoor play forever, but um, but I think that was great. Thank you so much for having me. That was that was so much fun. And um, yeah, I just um, really feel very fortunate to have chatted with you today. And I, I will plug that the Canadian Centre for Outdoor Play, um, you know, it's going to be focused out of this um this this Ottawa building. Um, but the intention is for what we're doing to have national impact. So um to those listening, if this is something of interest, you know, please reach out because we're we'll be looking for people to join um, a number of different committees, subcommittees, panels, communities of practice. Um, we don't want this to be something that that only exists um in in Ottawa because if it does it only exist in Ottawa it'll never survive we we need the rest of the country to participate so um please reach out there's a there's a contact us button on our website but um most simply it's just info at outdoorplaycanada.ca well thanks for joining us it sounds like there's a lot of very neat things going on with outdoor play so it's exciting Leah what was your takeaway from that conversation with Louise I really enjoyed our conversation. I thought she was very well-spoken and passionate about outdoor play. And I was reminded that Sasko Doris is a member of Outdoor Play Canada. And the benefits that we have received from diving into the resources parts of their website, uh, there's just a multitude of research and facts and images and infographics that we have used in the past to help advocate for outdoor play and share some of the knowledge. So I think there's lots more for me to revisit and look into more. I'd encourage anyone who was interested in becoming a member to check it out. The link is in the show notes to find out more. What about you, Mike? Yeah, I really liked the community that's hearing about the community that they've built there and all these different people from different fields working together to create really great resources for outdoor play. And it's made me reflect that I I'm I sometimes work as an individual too much as a teacher, and I've got to reach out to other people. I've got to talk to more people with different backgrounds and with different experiences, including those that I need to include more in my my thought process and planning too. So I'm going to spend some time digging into people that I, or talking to people I know and digging into some resources to to help me out with this. I'll probably visit the site uh, to see what they got too. This podcast is produced in association with Sask Outdoors. Check us out online at saskoutdoors.org.